As you've been hearing in the news, I know Mike Smith was talking about this as well. A lot of not only confusion, but anger over the recommendations and the opinion that was put out yesterday about the various vaccines that are available in Canada. Canadians have been discouraged from vaccine shopping, being told instead to get the first shot available. But NACI no longer appears to be on the same page as Health Canada. In an update yesterday, it indicated Pfizer and Moderna shots are preferred, seeing as the AstraZeneca and single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccines have been linked to an extremely rare blood clotting syndrome. Although it's, it's very rare... Um, it is very serious. Dr. Shelley Deke says Canadians should weigh the risks of waiting for one vaccine over another and make an informed decision. There have been seven cases of blood clotting in Canada, one of those fatal. Tina Trajani, Global News. Let's bring in Heidi Torek, Associate Professor of International History and Public Policy at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Uh, we wanted to talk to you about uh, these latest comments uh, from NASI and a lot of people saying they're finding them confusing uh, at best and uh, somewhat uh, making them a bit fearful at worst. What are your thoughts on this kind of uh, change in messaging when it comes to the different vaccines available? So I think there's a couple of things to, to say about it. One is that it, it is indeed uh, confusing for people because there are multiple messages that, that seem to be happening simultaneously. But, but the second thing to say is that uh, many, many epidemiologists, epidemiologists <laughs> excuse me, and others are making very clear that um, for most Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians, you take the first jab that, that you can get. And that the bottom line is that all of these vaccines are unbelievably effective in preventing hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Which is the message we've been hearing, especially the one of the best vaccine is the first one you're offered to take that one. Uh, We've been hearing that from politicians of every level, from health officials, uh, which is why I think these comments, uh, when we heard from the chair of NACI saying, uh, actually making an example saying, for instance, uh, if her sister took AstraZeneca and then died of thrombosis and and knowing that could have been prevented uh, because she's not in a high risk area, she wouldn't be able to live with herself. I mean, that's going to make people fearful. I think that's right. And, and this is actually something that, that psychologically we call um, the availability bias, which is that, of course, as, as humans, we're influenced by those individual stories, much more so than statistics around risk. And what we know is that, unfortunately, uh, COVID-19 is a disease that, that causes blood clots, right? Um, and that the chance of getting thrombosis from the vaccine is um, from an AstraZeneca vaccine is, is much, much lower than the chance of getting a blood clot if you contract COVID-19 itself. So I think this is really hard for people because this is a bias in our brains as to how we process information that the singular stories we hear about people who are affected by um, thrombosis after AstraZeneca lands with us much more than the understanding of the, the differential risk. It also seems to be sending a message to people or it's being perceived in a way of saying if you could perhaps wait, if you're in a position where you're working from home, you're not in an area where you're exposed to COVID-19 and you could wait for an mRNA vaccine, you might want to do that rather than get either the the AstraZeneca or the the Johnson & Johnson when it becomes available. Uh, And people are perceiving that as kind of uh, putting a a kind of ranking life and whether that... And that if you are able to stay at home and work, maybe you can get the preferred vaccine. If you're a frontline worker at a grocery store, you should take this one, which doesn't seem fair. 
Indeed, it does seem to, that messaging seems to cut against the, the equity-driven goals that, that we should see behind a vaccine rollout. And I think it's important to note that there are different opinions on this and that um, David Naylor, for example, um, was on CBC this morning saying, listen, uh, we, we should try very hard not to get into this world of thinking that there are brands for these vaccines. There's no Gucci vaccine or, or Rolex vaccine. These vaccines, every single one of them, despite their different delivery systems, are amazingly effective. But the number one thing we want, which, as I said, is preventing hospitalization and preventing death. What do you think the benefit is then? And we've had it explained from NASI that these are safety signals and they're simply putting the information out there. But what is the benefit of telling people about this very, very low risk of a vaccine uh, when, like you said, your risk of getting a blood clot if you happen to get COVID-19 is much higher? Uh, I would think your risk of getting hit by a car while crossing the street is probably much higher than the risk that comes with this vaccine. So I think it's, it's extremely important to inform people about risks, also because you need people to self-monitor, right? But what we need to do when we communicate risk is help people to put it into perspective, right? So, so we can do that in a whole host of different ways. Um, one is some of the risk communication we've seen coming out of places like Cambridge University's uh, Winton Centre on Risk Communication, which has a fantastic graphic that compares for people depending on their age what is the risk of any kind of blood clot um, or thrombosis coming out of the AstraZeneca vaccine versus your risk of getting COVID, getting a blood clot and being hospitalized? And we can see that for basically every age group over 30, um, it's much riskier to, to get COVID-19 than think about that blood clot. So that's one way. It's just help people understand those differential risks that exist. And another is, as, as you did, to compare it to something that we engage in in our everyday lives, right? Our, our lives, unfortunately, are never 100% free of risk. And so help people by comparing it to things that lots of people already do, whether that is for, for women taking a birth control pill where um, one in about 1,500 women might experience a, a blood clot or other types of risk in our daily lives. And that will help people really understand what kind of risk am I actually taking, right? Um, which I think has been the real problem for people is, is trying to pass that out given these sorts of confusing announcements. And is it more so then, do you think, because not only are we telling people or are we getting the information about risks that come with this, and again, very, very low risks that would come with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but do you think it's it's made more confusing or it's getting more of a reaction because not only are we getting that information, we're also being told there are these two other vaccines that are now really being perceived as the preferred vaccines? Yes, I think that that is problematic because, as I've said, what we see, right, is that every single one of these four that are approved by Health Canada achieves the number one goal we want to achieve, which is to prevent hospitalization and death. And one of the things that, that makes this complicated is that then even thinking about efficacy um, in terms of preventing mild COVID, um, the trials were done at different times with different variants and so on. So they're not um, what are called head-to-head -head trials where you actually compare one thing to another. And so what, what we need to do in this communication, I think, is just to make clear to people um, what exactly do we know about these vaccines? What don't we tell people what to look out for? Um, but make clear that actually to get to the end of this pandemic, all four of them are helping us along the way. And every individual Canadian is doing their part by getting a vaccine, no matter which one of them it is. And I do worry about 
this kind of brand hesitancy that, that might start to emerge if people believe that, that one is, uh, as Nasi called it, preferred over another because we need all of them to end this pandemic in Canada. Uh, do you think it helps if we look to places like the UK where a large number, uh, percentage of the population has received the AstraZeneca vaccine? Uh, here we have a place where the Prime Minister is talking about an end in the very near future to social distancing and really getting that country back to normal. Does seeing that help us maybe feel more comfortable or be more reassured about, like you said, the fact that all of these uh, vaccines have been approved? Yes, I think it does help us to see that there's uh, a major country that is absolutely still using this vaccine and, and rolling it out, of course, with the appropriate age-based caution. So it's appropriate, of course, to, to be cautious in the areas where that seems to be necessary. But my own father has had the AstraZeneca vaccine and I am you know, confident in it. He's off to get his uh, second dose, I believe, on, on Sunday. And I think it can also help for, for people to know that those of us who are on the radio talking about communications and so on and so forth, uh, we have family and friends who've gotten this vaccine and, and we are comfortable with it. Uh, I uh, exactly two weeks ago t- today, I got the AstraZeneca vaccine and now seeing this, but I'm still uh, hopeful. I'm looking forward to getting the second dose. So uh, I'm hoping that, uh, that that's the message as well that that's getting out there. Yes, I I hope so as well. And I think it's one of these things where we see that communications have consequences. They can, for people who are feeling joyful and using the hashtag GenXZeneca just a couple of weeks ago, now create anxiety and and fear. And and we want to think about communications that are honest, that are transparent, um, but also help people to understand what are the risks in a way that they can really put them into perspective, as I said before. So really helping people understand what is exactly the risk here versus the risk of of getting COVID-19 and getting blood clots through that, which is substantially higher. All right, uh, Heidi Torek, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, earlier today, we heard from Delta Police. Uh, They were providing an update on a brazen weekend shooting. You've likely been hearing about this on the news and announcing that they've also put a portal on the Delta Police website asking for people with photos or with video or for any information that they can upload those videos and help perhaps in the investigation. Let's bring on George Harvey, the mayor of Delta. Mayor Harvey, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I know a lot of people look at uh, what happened here. And uh, again, I mean, brazen is really the only word that that comes to mind. What are your thoughts, though, on what we saw unfold uh, in Delta in that busy parking lot uh, on Saturday? It was unbelievable. It was like a movie, uh, something you wouldn't see in reality. But there it was right at, at a very busy shopping center in Delta, which is very unusual that these events even happen here. Um, but I was very concerned, and I was in constant uh, discussions with their chief. And uh, first of all, I'd like to say I have full confidence in Chief DeBoard and our fine Delta police members uh, to solve this case. And I'm very proud as mayor that we're not handing off this file to IHIT. We are independent of IHIT, but we work very closely with them on their integrated teams. But the responsibility for this file, it happened in Delta, it's staying in Delta, and it will be solved in Delta. What is the benefit of that, do you think? Because that did come up this morning, and I know there were some questions about, is it a benefit to be independent rather than be part of IHIT? Well, it actually came up a number of years ago when I was still city manager here, and uh, I was not supportive of going to IHIT because of the financials. And again, um, you're a police officer, and you go into that profession to solve crime. 
and taking that element away from our Delta police officers, I thought was a, re- a real demoralizing factor and one that would cause problems for us attracting members in the future. So now that we have our independence, uh, we do not pay the, the, the financial uh, cost for IHIP, but we do not working in, a, in independent silos. Our, we actually have people seconded to them to gain the experience. And I can say our Delta police officers are fully trained in solving these types of crimes. But we also have um, reserves uh, as far as like an emergency reserve that's available for situations, whether it's recent floodings or windstorms, or even situations where there's homicides, to, which are very, very expensive to solve. We have insurance reserves away, and that's when I say insurance, it's self-funded by Delta, so that it doesn't impact our budget. And whatever resources Chief DeBoard and his officers need to solve this crime, the Delta Council will make sure that that funding is available to them. When we look at this and this the past week, the past few days have been uh, incredibly violent when it comes to shootings on streets and in many cases in very public areas. Uh, yesterday, we saw the shooting at the Willowbrook Mall as well. Uh, how do the agencies work together then? Like you said, the, the shooting on the weekend was in Delta. That is a Delta file. Uh, but it's possible that it's connected to the Willowbrook Mall shooting. It's possible it's connected to shootings in other jurisdictions. So how do you make sure that everybody is on the same page? Well, we make sure by, uh, you know, as chair of the police board, we have regular updates and sessions with our, our, our chief constable and staff. And we know that they do work very closely with other agencies all the time. And it's pleasant for me to see as the mayor that I can still be independent, but at the same time, share information, share resources, and we do assist other departments as needed. And then this is a prime example where they are working together. But insofar as solving this crime that happened in Delta, that's the responsibility of our Delta police, and again, I have full confidence that they will they will solve this. I also want to assure the public that we are very well resourced in, in Delta. That's one, of what, that's one of the reasons that we're one of the best cities to live. Our crime record is impeccable, uh, but we have additional resources in the North Delta community through the police chief to ensure public safety concerns are met there. Uh, we also have uh, our, uh, our portable on-scene site uh, there. It'll stay there until the chief feels that it's public there is, is, is no longer necessary. But again, in the North Delta people, we're on this. We own the file. We're going to solve it. And we have additional resources at this time up in North Delta. Uh, the victim in this case, in the Delta shooting, uh, has been identified, 29-year-old Bikram Deep Randawa. Uh, again, uh, he was shot and killed around 5 p.m. at that busy site, 72nd and Scott Road. Uh, not known to police, so we know he was a member of the B.C. Uh, Government and Services, Service Employees Union. He worked at the Fraser Regional Correctional Centre. Uh, people will hear this and obviously want more more uh, answers, more information, and, and knowing as well that police investigations take some time, but how do you kind of calm the fears of a community uh, that now might be be looking at this and thinking this could have been a case of mistaken identity? How safe are people when they're going about their days and shopping and, and in busy places? Well, first of all, my thoughts as mayor and with council and our police board are with the victim's family and friends uh, as they start to deal with this loss. Uh, but insofar as uh, people, you know, this is happening all over the lower mainland right now. It's very, very concerning for all mayors and all police chiefs uh, with regards to the crime that's happening. Uh, but people have to be vigilant. I just say to people that if this does happen, whether it's in Surrey or Delta or Burnaby or Vancouver, please don't you know, watch using your cameras. I mean, it's a public safety issue here that the chief 
uh, DuBord mentioned this morning. You know, your own safety is, a, is paramount on this. Uh, but we have uh, the police people will uh, feel calmer when they see our police forces up in North Delta. Again, we're well resourced and uh, we're there to ensure that public safety is, is upheld. Uh, it was something, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Chief DuBord talked about that too. And I think anybody that saw that video that was posted shortly after the shooting, it looked like something, it looked like uh, somebody was filming a movie. It was hard to to realize, wait a minute, what I'm looking at is somebody with a gun getting into a vehicle. Uh, what do you say though to, to somebody, because we do live in a culture now where when we see something happening in front of us, oftentimes the first response is to pull out your phone and start recording it. Just say to the public, uh, these these involved people have no concern for life at all, and that's been you know obvious, been very obvious in the recent shootings that have taken place. So again, you must look after your children. You must look after yourself. Uh, forget the camera for a while until such times as you're safe. You mentioned the fact that Delta is a safe community and is known, has been known for quite some time as being a safe community. Are you concerned now with what appears to be an increase in violence, not just in Delta, but in other neighboring communities as well? Are you concerned about that, uh, whether or not it is a safe community? I can assure people that Delta is a safe community and we have the statistics to show that. And we'll also show it by ensuring that the criminal element should know that Delta is not going to let go of this case until it's solved. How important is it, do you think, for people, and like you said, to stay safe and don't record something if you're going to be putting yourself in danger? But Neil Dubor did talk at length earlier today about this new portal that's on the Delta Police website. How important is it, do you think, for people to use that, to upload anything that they think might be evidence or might be helpful in this investigation? Anything they upload, uh, you never know what leads could come from that. And I thought it was extremely good of our Delta police uh, to open that portal up so that the public can send information very confidentially. Uh, as Chief DeBoard said, sometimes uh, uh, when the police want that evidence from a cell phone, they take your cell phone. That's why people don't want to actually give it up, of course. Uh, but this way they can do it and still have their cell phone up as part of their personal property. So, I, again, I compliment our police force uh, by having that portal up and running. And what do you say to people who might be fearful of retaliation or more retaliation, given that we still don't really know the motive or what led to the shooting in Delta on the weekend? Again, if you have any concerns uh, or see anything, please phone our, our emergency numbers. Uh, but also you can keep up to date with regards to on the Delta Police website. Uh, but I just want to say as mayor, uh, the police department has all the resources that they will need to solve this case and protect public safety in the North Delta area and South Delta too. Uh, Again, we are ensuring that the public is going to be safe. All right. Uh, Mayor, just before I let you go, uh, wanted to shift gears a a little bit in that after we uh, invited you to come on to talk about this, uh, we then uh, learned that the Surrey Board of Trade would like to see a vaccine uh, priority for all of Surrey, saying that Surrey needs to have this. Would you like to see a similar thing for Delta, being that it is right next door? Uh, We've already had uh, responses, uh, favorable responses from Fraser Health through Dr. Victoria Lee. Uh, our emergency services have received vaccines. In fact, uh, we have our firefighters providing immunizations through the clinic. So we're doing everything possible here to do that. Uh, There is some definitely some hot spots uh, within other Fraser Valley areas, including Surrey. Uh, And I I just say that's really actually stop talking about restrictions. 
Uh, what I'm talking about now is everybody, get the shot, get registered, get the shot. And I was very concerned about the mixed messaging that's coming out where we have one agency, independent agency, and, federal, and the federal government saying that people should wait for the right shots. But that's not what Dr. Henry is saying. And what she is saying is what other doctors on the ground are saying is to the public, take the first shot you get. And so we will continue in Delta providing our free bus services for those that need transportation to the clinics. And we're very pleased that we have two clinics available in Delta. All right. Mayor Harvey, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for being with us. Well, earlier today, a call was made, the Surrey Board of Trade calling on the B.C. government and the provincial health officer to bring in an action plan for the city of Surrey, one that would ensure enough vaccine supply to immunize every Surrey resident who wants a vaccine. Joining me to talk more about this and why this is needed is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. So what exactly would you like to see implemented in Surrey? Well, there's two things. Number one is we want enough vaccine supply, as you mentioned, to immunize all Surrey residents. And it has to be done in a way where communication and efficiency and more spaces and places are utilized, perhaps even with the private sector, to ensure that effort is done expediently. And number two, we want access to the vaccines to be available to anyone over the age of 18. And um, I think, you know, vaccine supply right now is uh, is not an issue. Uh, There's more vaccines coming and Surrey is a hotspot as it relates to COVID-19 virus cases. And when we look at what's happening in Surrey, and certainly we were uh, talking about some of the pop-up clinics, some of the challenges there. Uh, Fraser Health earlier today uh, put out the information that front of the line, frontline healthcare workers and frontline workers will be able uh, to get their vaccine. Uh, Do you think that's enough or does it need to go farther? I think it needs to go further, and we know that uh, some rising transmission rates have been occurring as it relates to the younger populations, and uh, it needs to go far, far deeper into our city, just not hot spots or pop-up clinics. And uh, we have to keep in mind that Surrey is also a diverse population. 104 different languages are spoken. So there needs to be education to those populations and easily accessible uh, language uh, processes because not everyone knows that you have to register for your first shot and also register for your second shot. Uh, what do you think the biggest challenges are? Is it uh, the, the large population, like you said, many different languages? Is it making sure that the information is getting to everybody and is getting to everybody in a way that is accessible? I think it's a combination of all of those pieces. Many frontline workers live in Surrey and then they work either in Surrey or in other parts of Metro Vancouver. Uh, we also have... Um, you know, a a third of our population that is under the age of of 30, so a very young population. Uh, We have a very diverse population, and uh, our geographic area is quite large. You can fit the cities of Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond into our city limits. There needs to be a more uh, creative solution for Surrey, 
and uh, the BC government, they need to help Surrey in our time of need. As we all know, uh, you know, we're at ground zero as it relates to COVID-19. Do you think there is enough buy-in when we talk about making sure that uh, everybody who wants a vaccine gets it? Is there enough buy-in and enough information and enough confidence? Do you think that that herd immunity could be reached in Surrey? I think it's starting to grow. I think there needs to be more work done. There's a lot of confusion in terms of messaging. I mean, we started this campaign called Say Yes to Vaccination uh, to educate our business community to take the vaccine that is first uh, given to you. And then there's these mixed messages also by the federal government National Advisory Health Committee about maybe the other vaccines are, are better than AstraZeneca. But uh, what we're trying to do um, as a business organization is to uh, try to expedite economic recovery to ensure that all businesses can reopen fully and that our city and our residents uh, can also enjoy uh, arts and culture live events uh, eventually sooner rather than later. And it is possible. Uh, through an efficient plan, communication plan, uh, to vaccinate close to 600,000 people that currently live in Surrey. And you mentioned this as well. Are you concerned that uh, things have been going along? We we have Fraser Health saying that all uh, childcare workers, school-based staff, first responders in the Fraser Health Authority can go ahead and book their immunization. Uh, now we are getting uh, the confusing messaging from the federal, uh, from NACI. Are you concerned that that could lead to vaccine hesitancy in some people? In some people, it will. I, I would say that uh, the majority of the population, they want to get life back to normal or the new normal that it's going to be beyond uh, vaccination. And uh, But there is confusion out there, absolutely. And especially when you're facing populations like in Surrey that um, where English is not their first language. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it really is... Um, concerning when it comes to economic recovery. And when we talk about that as well, from from the business point of view, how important is it as far as restrictions being lifted and trying to get back to some form of normal when it comes to businesses that are struggling? It's so important. I mean, we've been lucky in British Columbia. We've been lucky in Surrey that many of our businesses have thrived. Uh, They were considered essential services um, you know, where it's so different in other parts of Canada. But, um, you know, those businesses that are at the heart of our city building, our city design, uh, such as our restaurants, um, our live events, arts and culture, music, um, our tourism, hospitality businesses, they've all been so compromised. And uh, they're the ones that uh, really matter as well. We're all part of this equation where we all matter. And vaccination is the pathway towards reopening all businesses. Uh, Do you think or are you concerned at all that there might be some pushback if people hear this and think, okay, uh, yes, we see why Surrey would want uh, a a fast-tracked or a a focused immunization plan to get it to everybody, but there are other areas where people have been patiently waiting as well, and, and everybody who wants a vaccine wants to be at the front of the line? Well, we have to keep in mind, number one, that Surrey has the highest COVID-19 transmission rates. And I completely understand uh, the perspective, you know, why Surrey, when other parts of British Columbia are facing similar issues. 
but now, uh, you know, we have been hesitant in saying anything, uh, but now we're seeing that vaccine supply is increasing and that there is an opportunity to help uh, the hardest hit city uh, within British Columbia, and that is Surrey. And, you know, we're still growing by 1,200, 1,400 people a month, even during this pandemic. So uh, there's an opportunity uh, for creative uh, solutions and for the BC government to work with Fraser Health, uh, to work uh, with the private sector to ensure that um, we get the vaccine supply that we need in Surrey. All right. We will leave it there. Anita Huberman, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Let me begin by saying, first of all, that now is not the time to travel. Uh, We are all hopeful we're going to be able to get back to normal in the coming months uh, and start traveling again. Uh, But the reality is we're not there yet. We're still very much in a third wave. We still need uh, to get more and more people vaccinated across this country and get those numbers down. And that was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking earlier today when asked about people still traveling, politicians still traveling, and the idea of a vaccine passport in the future. Let's bring in Colin Furness, University of Toronto epidemiologist. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure, thanks. What are your thoughts when it seems to be uh, some, you could say, mixed messaging lately? Uh, We've been talking about vaccination mixed messaging and this idea of travel in that we're still seeing some politicians travel, uh, some being open about it, some not, while the rest of Canadians are being told this is not the time. I think mixed messaging describes it really well. Uh, We also just gave Air Canada a giant bailout, and they've been offering free travel insurance to to try and get people on airplanes. So I I think the industry is trying to get people to travel whenever they can, as much as they can. And when politicians and other kinds of leaders who people see as role models travel, I think that that is a, a dreadful thing dreadful thing to see, while sort of for the rest of us, uh, we're told not to. I fervently believe that traveling during a pandemic should be seen a bit like drinking and driving. It's, it's, it's selfish, and it's, it poses a really horrible, avoidable risk to others. Uh, even with the protocols in place, as far as having the negative PCR test, uh, staying in a hotel for three days, quarantining for two weeks, is that enough uh, that makes it so traveling doesn't pose a big risk as far as transmission? Our our travel protocols are a mess, a bit of a joke. Uh, We've had many instances of false test results being being forged, negative test results being forged. Uh, We know that 2% of travelers who get off the plane test positive, right? So they had a negative test getting on the plane, 2% positive getting off the plane. That ought to tell you something. Uh, One traveler in 1,000 from our measures last fall will actually turn up COVID positive 14 days after. That's after allegedly going through quarantine. So one in 1,000 doesn't sound like much, but when you're talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of people traveling, and when you think that one in infection leads to dozens to hundreds and then thousands you know all the infections we have in Canada came from one or two cases at the very beginning of this so it, it's a it's a pretty serious issue um, I, I think our, our travel protocols and I won't even use the word quarantine because I think that's just an insult to the word they, they're not effective they're not effective and it's a problem oh, well and the Prime Minister was asked earlier today as well during that same news conference uh, saying that yes there are still four airports in Canada that are accepting international flights But it's been well documented that in at least two of them, uh, people are just walking away and they might get a fine. They might not. There doesn't seem to be follow up of this. So really, I think people look at that and think, well, what's the point? 
can also, it's not just the four airports, you can, you can hire a private plane, and it's not as expensive as you think, and land in any airport in Canada that's able to take international flights. So um, you, you, you have people landing like that, and the word quarantine, I mean, nothing gets said, nothing, nothing comes up at all, you get in the car and you drive away. So it's a, it's a real problem. And my big concern is people who feel self-entitled to travel may also be engaged in some cases in other kinds of risky behaviors too, that that kind of selfishness, I think, might, might show up in, in other ways. But I also want to point out that there's a, there's a vic- the group of victims here, people who are separated from their families, who simply want to travel responsibly to see their families, they're sacrificing a lot. I've talked to a lot of people like that, and it's heartbreaking because you have people doing selfish travel while people who actually have good legitimate needs to do so aren't and are, are holding back. It, it feels terribly unfair. Uh, Does that go back to mixed messaging as well uh, throughout this pandemic that uh, if you asked uh, 10 people what the definition is of essential travel, you might get 10 different answers? Or 12 different answers. Yes, I've been saying exactly the same thing for a long time. We never define what essential is. We know that people who aren't strictly married but maybe in long-term relationships didn't count as essential. and A lot of work happened, I think, to get that changed um, last fall. That, that was a lot of work to make that happen. And then you have people who are able to cook up a good story. And I, my, my big concern is it's, it's up to our border agents to make that determination. And I just don't think that's, that's, they're really up to, up to it. And I don't mean it in terms of competence. I just don't think it's fair to ask them to be the, the, the arbiters of, of what is essential. It's, it's left up to them. The burden is dumped on them, and I, I, it just doesn't sit well with me. Uh, what about the fact that in BC now we uh, do have travel uh, a travel order in place and a potential uh, for a police road check, say if people are leaving <clears throat> excuse me, the Lower Mainland uh, for recreational purposes, they could be slapped with a $570 fine. Uh, that's if you're driving out of the Lower Mainland uh, for recreation. But you can hop on a plane, go to Ontario for a couple of weeks, come back, and there are no rules, there are no fines. Does it seem odd that, that there's no real consistency? I think it's very odd there's no consistency, and I think you can do it. I think there's ways to do it that don't involve um, having police pull you over. I think that's actually really problematic. That's, that's, that is not going to be visited equally upon people depending on, on race. We know that. And, and so I'd like to avoid doing that. But we could do it with, uh, with fees. I don't see why we can't have a temporary $1,000-ahead airport uh, user fee, and we can use that money to compensate victims of COVID and, and victims of... Of people who had to have their businesses shuttered. So I think people who really want to travel, I think maybe if we try to empty their wallets, they would travel less. And those who are truly rich and truly determined, well, we can manage a smaller number of travelers if they're if they're paying for everybody else's deprivation. That strikes me as being somewhat equitable. So I, I would try and do it with with taxing, uh, road tolls for that matter. But I, doing police checks is is worrisome. Uh, what are your thoughts as well on uh, the messaging today out of NASI? Well, yesterday, I suppose, the messaging that actually there are preferred uh, vaccine and you need to look at the risks and decide whether or not it's in your best interest to wait. I was astonished. I was flabbergasted and I was deeply disappointed. It was not a competent statement. Um, anyone who knows, and they, they know better than this, you can't compare vaccines that way. Each vaccine was tested in a completely different environment. You can't compare them. 
the Pfizer vaccine was tested during low prevalence and it performed really well. The AstraZeneca vaccine was tested during high prevalence and it performed really well. Um, as far as you know, side effects like blood clots go, I'll tell you, the best way to get a blood clot is to get COVID. COVID causes horrible blood clots and catastrophic stroke. So for NASI to suggest that maybe you should hold off getting vaccinated until you get you know, one that they think might be better um, is actually asking people to take a terrible risk. I, I think it's, it's negligent, it's incompetent, and I, I wish they would walk that back. Uh, do, do you think that there should be repercussions for uh, putting that message out there? Absolutely. I, I just can't even imagine what those repercussions ought to be. I'm not sure it serves anyone's purpose to disband this group, um, but I think uh, they, they, they need a talking to. Uh, they need communications help, and I think they need to try and undo some of the damage that they just did. And let's, let's be really clear about this. They did damage. I've been hearing from a lot of people who, like me, have had one shot of AstraZeneca and are wondering now whether they've been shafted. I mean, people are terrified, and, and, and there's no reason for them to be terrified. Uh, no, I'm hearing from people, too, in the same boat saying, do I, what do I do now? Do I go and get a second shot when it's available or do I now wait and wait for the, the evidence to come in or the communication on perhaps mixing vaccine? Well, there is research going on in the UK right now on exactly that question, what happens when you mix them. I don't think there's any concerns about safety. Um, vaccines aren't contraindicated with each other. The question is, are you going to have the same kind of protection? My guess, you know, and I'm not a vaccinologist, but my guess is that you're probably better off with a mix. Why? Diversity is better. Each vaccine stimulates the immune system in a slightly different way. So if you want to have a robust immune system, it strikes me that hitting it in more than one way is a good idea. Now, that's an unscientific perspective, but the reason why they're doing that testing is to measure that and gauge it. So let's, let's wait and see. But I'm, you know, I'm optimistic that, that if I end up with a Pfizer second dose, I'll be in better shape than, than if I got two Pfizer doses. Um, I, it's hard to imagine that I wouldn't be in as good shape. And we also have to remember there's going to be a third booster. There's going to be a fourth one. That's the way this is going to unfold over the next year. And I, and I, I think there's, there's just a lot of needless anxiety around choices that have been made now, smart choices that have been made about getting vaccinated as quickly as possible. All right. Colin Furness, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. This story might seem a little bit alarming, but we're going to try to get to the bottom of it. It is an out-of-control Chinese rocket core and currently pinwheeling around the globe every 90 minutes or so, having many people come up with the question, well, where and when is it going to come crashing down to Earth? The object is about 30 meters tall, 21 tons. It is a leftover from China's Long March 5B rocket that carried a piece to uh, into orbit on April 29th. So what can we expect moving forward? Jonathan McDowell joins me now, an astrophysicist at Harvard University. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Good afternoon. Should we be concerned about this rocket core pinwheeling around? I mean, not on a personal level, right? It, it's... Um uh, there is some danger that when this re-enters, I mean, we, we do think when it breaks up, pieces of it will reach the ground. And if that isn't over the ocean, if it's over land, it could cause property damage. And certainly you'd have a bad day if a piece of it hit you. Uh, but, you know, it's we don't know where it's going to come down in some big swath of the Earth. And actually, if you're in Vancouver, you don't have to worry because it's only its orbit only goes up to 41 degrees north. <laughs> OK, well, that's a relief. <laughs> 
Do we have an idea when it might come crashing down? Yeah. So the latest predictions are sometime between May 8th and May 10th. And the problem is that it's, it's sort of surfing the top of the atmosphere in this circular orbit. And eventually it gets low enough that it heats up and melts because of the friction with the atmosphere. But a very small change in the density of the atmosphere that can happen because of solar activity will change exactly when that happens. And so we can't predict very precisely when. And because it's traveling at 18,000 miles an hour, if you predict an hour off, then you also can't predict where, right? Because in an hour, it goes 18,000 miles. Right. And is this something that normally we don't really pay attention to, but something's gone a bit wrong here? No, it's actually very unusual. Um, uh, we do have rocket stages burning up in the atmosphere all the time, but they're usually much smaller, one or two tons. Whenever you have a big rocket like this, uh, usually the engineers design it so that it doesn't get left in orbit like this. It has a restartable engine that they slam it down into the atmosphere over the South Pacific or somewhere where it's not going to hurt anyone. And so this Chinese Long March 5B rocket uh, is very unusual in that it does leave this big stage in orbit. And this is its second launch. On the first launch about a year ago, uh, the core stage re-entered over Africa and actually caused some damage to some buildings in uh, Ivory Coast. And and so people are a bit worried about this because it's it's really for the past 40 years or so, there's been sort of a, it's not a law or rule, but there's been a general practice not to do this, not to leave these big stages to reenter on their own. And it's a bit puzzling why China's decided to do this. All right. That was going to be my next question, is if there's kind of that unwritten rule, why are we seeing this happening again? Yeah, I mean, I guess the Chinese engineers are thinking, yeah, the Earth's big, it probably won't hit anyone, let's just risk it. Uh, But that's not really very, you know, I think that was fine in the 1970s when other countries used to do this, but it's just not really acceptable now in the 21st century. So if this does land on uh, Earth, on on actual land, doesn't land in an ocean, but it lands on terra firma, (laughs) what kind of damage could we potentially be looking at? Right. Well, I don't want to overstate it. Um, right. You do. So in the last reentry, we saw, you know, rods of metal about uh, uh, 10 meters long uh, that were sort of flying through the air and, and planted themselves in uh, uh, one went through a small building. Uh, and so and they're going maybe about 100 miles an hour by that stage. Right. So this rocket that starts off with enormous amounts of energy uh, uh, going at, at all these thousands of miles an hour bleeds off all of that energy in the fireball as it reenters. Uh, and so by the time the pieces of it reach the ground, they're actually going much slower, uh, uh, but still, you know, uh, fast enough to cause damage. And and so I think, you know, if this came down in a heavily populated area. You, you could see, you know, property damage and even, you know, you can't rule out a casualty or two, although I really hope that doesn't happen. But because so little of the earth is covered with people, so even today, the chances of it are not that big. Which is uh, somewhat reassuring, although the way you described it, to, even though it's, it's much smaller, to look up and think you're going to see this rod come flinging at you through the air, that's a little bit horrifying. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a bit like a small plane crash. This is the way to think about it. Like a like a Cessna or something a bit bigger? Yeah, something maybe, but, you know, not a 747, but, but something in the middle. And, and the difference is that instead of, you know, if a plane crashes, all the, all the debris is in one place. 
um, because this thing breaks up about 30, 40 miles up in the in the sky, the debris gets strewn in a long line over about a hundred mile uh, stretch. What kind of advance notice then will we have as far as when this thing does start making its comeback or if it starts falling towards Earth? Do we get do we get kind of a, a bit of a warning where we will know if it's going to land, say, in somewhere where there are people, where there is a population, or if it's going to land, say, in the ocean? Really not, because even at the time of reentry, we're still we'll still be uncertain by about an hour or two of when it's going to come down. And that's enough for it to go all the way around the Earth. So we'll be able to so what we'll be able to do is elimination. We'll be able to say, yeah, this continent's okay, that continent's okay, but but this other one might might have to worry. Uh, and and we won't really get it any finer than that until it's actually re-entered and we start getting measurements from satellites so that have seen the flare of the re-entry, or in the worst case, you know, cell phone videos from people who have, uh, uh, as we did in the case of the African one, uh, uh, people who have found stuff on the ground. And and as the size it is right now, and, and you kind of mentioned this, but would this be then one of the biggest things that we've seen make an uncontrolled re-entry? Yes, certainly in the past 40 years. Uh, there have been a couple other comparable things that came down accidentally uh, because their engines failed. And we had, you know, back in the 70s, we had Skylab. And Skylab was even bigger, the, the American space station that reentered over Australia in 1979. Uh, uh, that was a 70-ton space station. And big chunks of it landed out in the, the Australian outback. And so that was when really most countries went, huh, perhaps we shouldn't do this and started to to be more serious about about avoiding space debris of large amounts falling falling from the sky. So uh, um, really, it's been a long time since we've seen uh, um, this kind of large re-entry. And, and, and I really feel it's a bit irresponsible to the Chinese. Uh, do you think it might change things moving forward since uh, we do have, like you said, people with cell phones uh, when it landed uh, in the Ivory Coast uh, were quick to put up photos and luckily there were no injuries. Uh, depending on what happens with this one, do you think it might uh, lead to change and lead to maybe going back to that idea of let's not do this anymore? That's right. I think eventually there will be enough pressure on China to the extent that it cares about uh, um, other countries' uh, views of it uh, that that they will do something to change their uh, their approach. And it wouldn't be too hard for them. All they really need to do is stop their rocket a little bit short of orbit and make the space station that it's launching fire its own thrusters to do the last few miles. And uh, and that would let you, you know, dump the rocket in a particular part of the ocean uh, that you could plan for. So so there's really not much excuse for what they've done. And I'm really hoping that uh, they they can be persuaded to change their their operations in future. And and just one more question about when this does. And as you said, in Vancouver, we can breathe a little uh, easier. It's not going to be a threat here. But if it does go over a place where there are people, uh, will people? At what point will people be able to start seeing it? 
Um, well, you know, you can see it right now if you live in the right part of the world. It's one of the brightest stars in the sky as it goes over. And uh, and so if you're hearing this from somewhere, you know, uh, 41 degrees uh, north or, or south, you uh, uh, you can go to heavensabove.com and, and get predictions for when it's coming over uh, overhead. Uh, and then as it actually reenters, it'll get much brighter and you'll see uh, um, a flaming thing in the sky, a bit like what many of Vancouver residents saw a month or so ago when the SpaceX upper stage re-entered uh, over Washington State, and uh, but that was a much smaller re-entry. So this should be quite spectacular if people actually do see it. All right, something to look forward to or to look out for, uh, as you said, uh, the window of May eighth to May tenth. Jonathan McDowell, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Good afternoon. All right, getting a few people emailing, uh, asking once again, what was that phone number when it comes to the postal code where you can text uh, your postal code and you get a reply with vaccination sites uh, near you? It's uh, mainly pharmacy sites. The number one eight three 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 five six. 1683. And if you want to email me, I can send that to you as well. Right now, though, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We've been talking about the encampment in Strathcona Park. It has been there for several months. So we know that the camp has been cleared out, although there will now be a lengthy remediation process for that park in Vancouver. What are some of the lessons learned? Well, Jamie McLaren spoke with our show contributor, John Jang, about that and take a listen. Good afternoon, Jill. It's been four days since Strathcona's Camp KT, one of the largest tent cities in Canada, was ordered to leave the premises on April 30th. So how did Camp Clearout Day go, and are there any lingering issues that we should know about? Let's connect with Jamie McLaren. He's a social justice lawyer and a resident of the Strathcona community. Jamie, how did Clearout Day go, and what has it been like since? Yeah, well, we were expecting, we were bracing for, for trouble, and, and trouble didn't appear to, to come, so that's the good news. But basically what happened is uh, the park board under the management of Donnie Rosa went in and uh, very sensitively, I should say, um, you know, encouraged people to, uh, to take an offer of indoor housing or shelter and succeeded in doing that for the most part, and it went quite well from my perspective of course you know not everyone's going to be happy ever but um but i think they did it in a way that was quite respectful and sensitive and and didn't um stir up too much trouble so uh we were bracing for for some tension at least and potential violence um and pushback on that day um but it didn't appear to to happen so we're quite happy about that for for everyone involved yeah, that's a big sigh of relief from everyone, like you said, uh, certainly with the number of uh, fires and violent incidents that we had seen happening at Strathcona over the past few months. It's a great thing that nobody got hurt on Camp Clearout Day. I did see photos, though, of uh, leftover items, some garbage, things like that left over at the park. Have there been attempts by the city to try and clear out some of those things since? Yeah, so there has been efforts, and they're pretty visible efforts, of um, clearing out some of the debris and some of the old... Uh, belongings that were left there. Um, there's still a few people kind of milling about there, and I'm not sure if they're, you know, residing there overnight or just visiting there by the day by day. But um, it's uh, yeah, they had bulldozers in there and and big crews, large crews, removing a lot of the um, the leftover 
uh, equipment and, and belongings. So it's, it'll take a while, I'm sure. Um, it, it certainly doesn't look like a park you want to use um, anytime soon, and it'll probably be months before people use the east side of the park, but it's, it's, it's a process, and we all recognize that, and I think they're making good headway. How do the residents of that community feel? I know, you know, you, you can speak for yourself personally, but have you had conversations with some of your neighbors who, of course, have been in this situation like everybody else and having to deal with it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's been a, a long ride. So, you know, it, it's 10 months or so that um, the encampment was in place in Strathcona Park. And over that time, you know, there's at least a, a low level of stress. And sometimes there's high amounts of stress depending on you know who you encounter or what happens to you either you know as a camper or as a resident a house resident so it's been a long haul um i think the the way to describe it is a sense of relief and and peace that comes with knowing that the park will return to a a place where everyone can enjoy it um but you know over the course of those 10 months there's a lot of trauma a lot of uh suffering you know primarily within the camp i should say and and it'll take a while to you know to heal those those wounds i think what lessons do you think need to be learned from what we saw transpire not just at strathcona literally speaking in the park but of all the issues surrounding it yeah you know and i think it comes down to the fact that that housing is a is a basic human need and therefore a basic human right you know and and maybe governments failed to to understand that and and the the consequences of not um respecting that uh, reality you know and and so you know it was really disappointing to see the lack of action and the lack of ownership i guess among the different levels of government when this first the encampment first took place in Oppenheimer, really and then moved on to crab park and then moved on to strathcona park it's, it's a very complex problem homelessness and it's you know it intersects with addiction and intersects with mental health issues and so forth there's all sorts of crises playing out including the pandemic of course um but that just makes it you know more urgent to deal with it and not something you can sweep under the rug like it seems like governments have doing, been doing for for many years so you know this, these interjurisdictional battles you know and and passing the buck between levels of government was it was really disappointing and dismaying to see as 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 a um, you know a resident for a house resident even of a place where you know the problem of, of homelessness was was concentrated but you know for the people living in a camp and, and especially for the people who had to live in the camp over the course of the whole winter and be subject to violence and and the danger of fires and and so forth you know it was really really unfortunate and and so there's a big lesson to be learned here is that you know you need to confront these problems you need to recognize that that housing is is a is a basic human right, and that people can only thrive if they're you know if they're housed really in, in my mind. The Vancouver Civic election rolls around next year, but I'm sure that the residents of Strathcona are already thinking ahead and uh, going to bring up housing as a main issue for what you had to experience here over the past ten months. Yeah, well, housing certainly you know, and, and there's a policy you know housing first policy that I think that. A lot of people understand and appreciate in our neighborhood, but also, you know, the uh, drug poisoning crisis, you know, overdose crisis, that's another big issue. And I should say, you know, we'll, you know, our memories will be long in, in, in Strathcona. We'll remember the politicians who, who came down to the community, who visited with us, who consulted with us, who tried to confront the issue. And we'll remember the politicians that didn't. And there was a fair number of who didn't include, including the mayor, if I can say that. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll remember this on election day, certainly. 
and um, yeah, housing, uh, the the um, overdose crisis. Those are those are big issues in our neighborhood. He is Jamie McLaren, a resident of Strathcona, somebody that's been detailing the issues on behalf of other residents throughout this entire experience here on CKNW. Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate the the coverage and attention you've provided to this. It's you know I think that was really critical to to getting governments to move on this matter. So thank you for that.